Howdy, folks. Welcome to Down with the Dharma. I am John Fries, and I'm with my good friend, Dot Fawn. Uh, he was on the previous podcast. We're doing a series where we're talking about my dissertation, and we're going one chapter at a time. Um, so just to refresh your memory, Dot and I were monks together with Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, he was Fap Tam, that's his Dharma name, and mine is Fap Ngo. Uh, remind me of Fap Tam, what does it mean? Uh, Dharma communion. Uh, Dharma communion. Dharma yoga. Dharma yoga. Dharma yoga. Dharma union. Nice. Uh, and how did, Tom, what's the accent for Tam? Tam is T H O N G with a hat over the O. Okay. And so, how do you pronounce it properly in Vietnamese? In Vietnamese, we say "fap tum fap tum fap tum." Yes. Right. Fap goes up, and then tum. Yes. 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 And I'm fap, I'm fap ngo fap ngo. So I'm uh, all of us that were ordained together. We have fap fap, which means dharma, and then whatever Bodhi. our individual name. Yeah, ngo is like bodhi or, well, yak ngo is enlightenment in Vietnamese and so ngo is like awakening or... Awakening. Yeah. But like he, he would give names that had multiple layers and I've, I've heard ngo in regular Vietnamese means like weird, funny, or cute. Ngo is strange. Yeah, strange, yeah. Everyday Vietnamese. Yeah. <laughs> does, does your name have a side meaning also like that? I think... Like when the Dharma names in the Vietnamese tradition mm -hmm. um, is the the meanings comes more from Sino Vietnamese. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Giving, it's like a Latin. Yeah. Latin, yeah. Right. But uh, Tum in everyday Vietnamese can mean different things like um, clear, uh -huh. transparent. Yeah. Yes. So it, it means a completely different, different right. thing, actually. Okay. So for you, it's more communion, really, is the name, and that's what he was getting at, as opposed to. Yes. Multi-layer yes. name. Yes. Like you and go, I, I think it was definitely awakening in this context. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like Fab E was like from Italy. So E means Italy, but it also means mine. And he was like super intelligent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> super brainy. Yeah. A you can translate as consciousness also. Mind, ah. consciousness, different. Yeah. Different meaning. Yeah. Uh, okay, so today we're going to be talking about chapter two of the dissertation, which is the literature review. And so again, my dissertation is comparing Buddhist meditation with trauma therapy. And so the literature review is um, looking at um, the dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy in the U.S. from 2012 until the present. So that's the first section. Um, and then the second section, I give uh, background to that dialogue by talking about um, different lineages of practice. Um, so I talk about trauma therapy itself as a lineage of practice going back to Freud um, and Charcot actually in France. And then I talk about the Western Vipassana movement which is like IMS, Spirit Rock, and then their secular 
spinoffs like uh, MBSR, MBTT. Um, so I talk about that lineage uh, with Mahasi Sayada uh, and his teacher Mingun Sayada from the Burmese lineage. Then I talk about the Gawinka Vipassana lineage, which is another Burmese lineage that goes back to Lady Sayada, who was actually um, contemporaries with Freud. So it's interesting that this the Burmese Vipassana lineage, starting with Lady Sayada, you could see as a, uh, um, a synchronous lineage or a lineage that was going on at the same time as Western psychology, psychotherapy was being developed by Freud. Um, and so then I talk about the Thai forest lineage, uh, going back to Ajahn Moon in um, Northeast Thailand and the, in the forest of Thailand, but also he, he kind of wandered around different regions of the forest, like Burma, Laos, uh, Cambodia, Thailand. Um, and then I talk about the order of interbeing with Thai. And so talking about um, Master Tai Shu in China and kind of this, uh, this emergence of humanistic Buddhism or engaged Buddhism that starts in China and then it, it has an influence in Vietnam as well as in Taiwan. Um, and then the third section is once I've given the historical, historical background of those lineages, then I compare how those lineages interpret the Satipatthana teachings, um, mainly from the Pali Canon, but, um, Ajahn Sujatu from the Thai forest tradition compares the Pali Canon with, um, other early canons, um, and mainly the um, the Sarvastivada the Sarvastivada canon that was originally in Sanskrit but got translated into Chinese and the Agamas, um, and then also how uh, Shuom that's what so when Faptam and I say Shuom we mean grandfather teacher so we're talking about that's a way that students of Thich Nhat Hanh would refer to him, um, so how Shuom also did a comparative study between the Pali text and texts in the Chinese uh, canon. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm going to try to give a very kind of bird's eye view of the literature review because it's a ton of material and there's no way we could talk about it all in depth. So <laughs> uh, I'm just going to try to give a bird's eye view, brief summaries. Um, and as we did in the previous podcast, then like to get dots uh Faptam's feedback um based on these topics that I bring up. Okay. So um and again Faptam is in uh the Blue Cedar community uh in the Haute Loire region of France, the town Haute Loire, so you're outside of Haute Loire, which is outside of Lyon. Uh, nice. in the in the mountains. So what did you say? You're outside of the town of Haute Loire? Yeah, we're more in the like the the volcanic mountains in this region. Ah. Yes. Okay. Volcanic rocks are good for sweat lodges. I don't know if you've tried to use that. <laughs> and no, I think in terms of the the energy here and the different um, the volcanic rocks and the, the region yeah. is quite um uh, conducive to a contempt 
contemplative life because we're in, the, in nature also. Yeah. Nice. Okay, so anyway, so Thomas in France, I'm here in California, so that we're we're meeting uh, on Zoom to to do this uh, session here. Okay, so the first section, the scholarly dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy in the U.S. So it's mainly been a dialogue that's been going on for about ten years from from 2012 till now, and so in 2012, this um, practice, scholar practitioner named David Tredlevin, um, who is a practitioner within the Western Insight community, uh, so meaning IMS and Spirit Rock, he did a dissertation at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and he is basically looking at the Vipassana teachings so he calls it the Western Vipassana movement, and that means IMS, Spirit Rock, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, um, that kind of whole group or network of teachers and practitioners. So he he's um, analyzing Western Vipassana movement teachings using somatic experiencing, which is a body-centered somatic trauma therapy developed by Peter Levine. Um, he's using the, the what, I, what I say, SE as the shorthand for somatic experiencing. He's using SE theory and practice to analyze Western Vipassana movement teachings um, on the four establishments of mindfulness. Yes, and I believe that he wrote recently a book on trauma-based mindfulness. Also, is this exactly correct? later okay. on? Then he wrote a book called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. Yes, Trauma Sensitive um, Based Mindfulness. Yes. I can't remember exactly what year that was. I want to say around 2018, something like that. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. So you could say that that's that's the more practical book where he's he himself has integrated the WVM Vipassana teachings with somatic experiencing and other elements of somatic trauma therapy to create what he calls trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Yeah. Mm. So there's there's um, two main themes that have been happening in the dialogue. Um, one has been how psychiatrists and psychotherapists have integrated the WVM teachings on Vipassana meditation into trauma therapy. And so what that means is mainly um, coming from the Mahasi Vipassana tradition, the practice is mindfulness of breathing in the belly and then cognitively labeling the in-breath and the out-breath and then cognitively labeling whatever else arises in your awareness using the four establishments as an overall map to, to categorize what you're labeling. Yes, yes. And so the four establishments from in the Mahasi tradition is uh, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of objects of mind. So, uh, so one theme has been how that practice has been integrated into trauma therapy. <clears throat> um, so there's the psychiatrist named John Breer and Catherine Scott that they wrote a book called Principles of Trauma Therapy, and they have a chapter on 
basically integrating that mindfulness mindfulness of body um feeling thought and then what they when they talk about the fourth establishment they call it um existential insights so they say mindfulness of body feelings and thoughts can be used to um, help people develop affect regulation which is a fancy word for being able to be with intense sensations or emotions and being able to be mindful of them and help them calm down yes yeah. affective emotion which means relating to fear anxiety stress etc right right okay. you can be mindful of the emotions and um be able to calm them down basically um and then they say another another benefit is metacognitive awareness which means aware of thought patterns versus getting caught up in them and identifying with them and so mainly like um in the context of trauma it can mean like you know intense negative intrusive thoughts so the practice of mindfulness of the mind can help you step back and just observe the thoughts versus being caught up in the thoughts and then so for existential insights Mahasi Vipassana focuses on three marks of existence, which teaches all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. It's the source of suffering if you try to uh, attach to them, and they're no self. So, so this the, is the mark of existence within the Theravadan tradition. Yeah, yeah the, so the yeah Tilakana which in Sanskrit, I think it's a uh, tree lakshana. Um, so it goes all the way back to Buddha Gosa and the Vasudhimaga. Um, this is the Theravada scholastic teachings saying the way you practice Vipassana meditation is you're practicing mindfulness of body, feelings, and mind. And then you're observing how all the phenomena you are observing are impermanent uh, suffering and not self. And you you contemplate, you do that contemplation as a way to disrupt the habit energies that cause you to identify and attach to the body and mind of self and that cause rebirth. So within the context of trauma therapy, they present a more existential humanist version of those insights. So again, John Breer, Catherine Scott, in this chapter in their book, um, principles of trauma therapy but then also there's another book um that's a collection of different chapters of people talking about buddhism and trauma therapy uh, mindfulness-based interventions for trauma integrating the contemplative dimension um so in that book briere has a chapter where he's talking again about integrating wvm vipassana into trauma therapy so he talks about how you can use the Vipassana teachings to help people cultivate existential insights. And so then they talk about impermanence as, um, they talk about it in two ways. One is um, facing immortality, sorry, facing mortality, facing that life is impermanent, you're going to die at some point. <laughs> so, so that's an existential insight. Or the insight that whatever you're experiencing, sooner or later, it's going to change. Um, 
Then for suffering, they teach being able to tell the difference between the unavoidable physical and emotional pain that comes with life and then your reactions to that pain. And they use the teaching on the two arrows. You, you get hit with one arrow okay. and it's a certain yes. amount of pain. And then you get hit with a second arrow and it's like 10 times more pain. Mm -hmm. So the second arrow is your reaction to the pain. And so the insight is there's a difference between the pain and your reaction. And then with practice, you can learn how to let go of the reaction, basically. Yes. I think they say like um, suffering is um, universal. Yeah. Uh, pain is universal. Is psychological suffering is optional. Right. Yeah. That that through practice of mindfulness of the body, feelings, thoughts, um, and telling the difference between the pain and your reaction, over time you can let go of the reaction. Um, so that you could say that's one of their core teachings. You could say you could argue that they they are defining trauma as the reaction to the pain, and that over time you can let go of the reactions, and that's. The, what that means then is you're healing from the trauma as a mm. by doing that. Um, and then for no self, they tend to teach that as you're wanting to cultivate a non-dual awareness of internal and external experience where you're just aware of what's arising and you're not identifying with it. You're just able to be with what's happening and you're not, um, you're not identifying and creating a division between the internal and external experience. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. No, I'm just, I'm following. Okay, sure. okay. Um, and then another insight they bring in, which, which is not traditional to Mahasi Vipassana or Theravada um, is the insight into interdependence. So they'll talk about the teachings of dependent origination as um, talking about a complex system of causes and conditions in which everything is interdependent. Okay. And so they, they, they frame that as another existential insight that you can get um, through mindfulness practice and then opening up to how your body is interdependent with the physical world and how your mind is interdependent with like the social psychological world around you. Okay. So here they're, they're defining interdependence more in terms of the self in relationship with different elements, society, the elements, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's one of the main themes in the dialogue. Um, there's another psychiatrist, uh, Mark Epstein, who wrote this book called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And he integrates um, Winnicott, who is like a Jungian analyst um, focusing on early childhood experience. Um, so Epstein talks about using mindfulness of the four establishments to basically, um, cultivate an inner parent who can witness the suffering from childhood and the deep wounds from childhood around attachment issues, um, that you can use the practice of mindfulness to accept and be with that pain and, um, come to terms with it and, and heal from it. Um, and he also talks about four establishments and existential insight and non-dual awareness and things like that. Okay. So that, that's one theme of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then another theme 
uh, starting with Trelevin and his dissertation in 2012, um, talking about how the teachings on the four establishments from the Western Vipassana movement, um, how he, he basically, he has two critiques. One is bare attention or bare recognition of sensations and emotions um, can result. If someone has trauma, they can get overwhelmed by the sensations and emotions and they can get blown out of the window of tolerance. He calls it the window of tolerance. You can get overwhelmed by the sensations and emotions and get re-traumatized. And so what he said is, is using theory and practice from somatic experiencing, you can understand using polyvagal theory, you can understand these different instinctual drives of immobility, fight or flight, and social engagement. And so you can learn, oh, I'm my immobility drive is getting activated. Um, and then I can be aware there's these sensations that are sensations of immobility. Um, and they make me feel like I'm going to die because it's the immobility response is your body pretending it's dead. So you can be in touch with these sensations of immobility, and then they give rise to intense fear. And basically the sensations and the fear feed on each other and escalate, and then you, you're overwhelmed and re-traumatized. And so he says that the teachings on somatic experiencing, <clears throat> first of all, they just give you the neurobiological story about what's happening so you can recognize, oh, this is my immobility response getting activated. And then they give practical teachings in which you work with body sensations and you don't, you, you, you focus on body sensations and you don't focus on emotions and thoughts. You're trying to focus just on the body sensations. And then you, first of all, try to focus on just pleasant, neutral sensations to build up stability. And in SE, in somatic experiencing SE, that's known as resourcing. Then you do pendulation, which means you alternate between pleasant and unpleasant sensation. And then you're when you're doing that, you also do titration, which means you're just taking small doses of the unpleasant sensation. And so by doing that practice, you can metabolize the sensations and emotions as opposed to getting overwhelmed by them. And so that's how you can metabolize trauma. Okay, this trauma you're referring to, like I'm going back to our last discussion, is more mm -hmm. like a small t trauma, huh? Um, if you're, okay, so then, so another, the, the, the second critique that Trilevin has is that if you're at a WVM retreat, it's a silent retreat, there's very little talking and there's, there's some, there's interaction with the teacher, but not so much. And he says that within SE, SE makes use of the social engagement drive, which is one of the three drives. And that when the therapist and the client have attunement with each other, they're activating the social engagement drive and the social engagement drive can help limit how activated the immobility drive and the fight or fight drive are. So just through social engagement, that's one way of helping someone be stabilized and feel safe. 
And then as he talks about different levels of intensity. And so this, yeah, what we talked about in the last episode of small T trauma versus big T trauma within the world of SE, it would be how intense are the body sensations? How intense are the emotions? And, and then, and then as a result, how intense of a effect does that have on your nervous system? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, Trelevin is saying to deal with trauma, you need a therapist who knows how to do somatic trauma therapy to help you safely navigate the trauma. Okay. Um, but he also says, so his, so his takeaways are that the Western Vipassana movement should integrate somatic trauma therapy theory and practice so it can recognize when trauma is happening. Yes, and that uh, yes. it has these body centered practices to respond to it. Um, whether so, then so, so another article that came out by Peter Levine himself and some other um, mm. SE, SE people is they said, Hey, SE can help mindfulness practitioners understand more what's going on in their practice. And it can help them use mindfulness practice to metabolize the trauma. And so I think so. I think one one element of the dialogue is probably what you could argue is when it comes to small t trauma, you could use mindfulness practice that's informed by SE to metabolize the trauma as a meditation practitioner just practicing on your own. Okay. You could use your meditation practice to heal from the trauma. Um, but then another teaching for what Trelevan is saying, if it's if it's intense trauma, you really need a therapist a who therapist. knows what they're okay. doing. Okay. Um, because you need the social engagement. Yes. You need the social context of a one-on-one session where there's attunement between the therapist and the client. Um and then the social engagement helps create safety and then the safety and attunement and then the 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 wisdom of the therapist that can guide you through getting in touch with neutral to pleasant sensation and then alternating between pleasant and unpleasant and then getting in touch with the unpleasant you need a guide to help you go through that process mm-hmm. so if you're talking big t trauma then it needs to be in the context of therapy okay yeah. Um, so those are the two main themes in the dialogue. One is psychiatrists or psychotherapists who are using mindfulness of the body, emotions and thoughts and existential insights in trauma therapy to help people. So that would be like more mainstream trauma therapists using mindfulness practice. Yes. Um and then another another kind of sub track within trauma therapy is the somatic trauma therapy track. And that's using more the polyvagal theory and interpersonal neurobiology. And they're using um a practice that is mainly focused on body sensations um to work with the trauma. Um 
And so that's that's now becoming there's an article by the um there's a there's a school of social work at Smith College and they have a journal. And there was an article um by uh I think the Zaleski and two other people, um where they say now basically in trauma therapy, a best practice is to have some kind of relational psychotherapy and integrate that with some kind of body-centered technique, such as somatic experiencing or EMDR or yes. trauma resiliency model. Um, so within the dialogue on Buddhism and trauma therapy, you could say there's mainstream trauma therapists using mindfulness practice. Um, and they haven't yet really talked about integrating that with the somatic trauma therapy stuff. Um, and then you have Tred Levan, who's who's critiquing the Western Vipassana movement and Western Vipassana retreats by saying they don't have enough of the somatic trauma therapy theory in practice and they need to integrate that. Mm -hmm. And now actually, um, and Anne Gleig, the religious studies scholar in her book, American Dharma, she's she says that now uh, for Spirit Rock teacher training, they require their teachers to do um, a minimum amount of somatic trauma therapy training. Mm -hmm. And SE is one of the options, basically. Yeah, I think that is also emerging in the secular mindfulness movement, this um, emphasis on trauma. Because mm -hmm. I think that they see more and more cases, I guess, now to respond to that need. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting to here and for, for you per personally through through this critiques what what were you trying to um were you trying to give another argument or were you trying to show another perspective or what was right. the, the yes. intention oh, i'm glad you asked studying that these two yes <laughs> um okay so in general i agree with trelevin that the WM, WVM Vipassana meditation, which comes from the Mahasi Vipassana, just um, practicing open awareness of whatever arises and labeling it um, is limited in terms of how well it can respond to trauma and that there needs to be a more body-centered focus that's looking at sensations and the relationship between sensations and emotions and working skillfully with sensations to deal with the emotions mm. and that it helps to have uh, someone else there guiding you through the process. So I agree in general with his critique of the Western Vipassana movement. Um, so my argument is that Goenka Vipassana, which is coming from the Lady Vipassana lineage of Vipassana meditation, um, already has theory and practice that's very similar to somatic experiencing and that um, Goenka Vipassana doesn't need to integrate somatic experiencing theory and practice. It needs to just use somatic theory and practice, use, use, the, use SE theory and practice to recognize what it already has and then develop yes, because it's it's there already. Yeah, it, in, it in the, yeah, in the four establishments that's being practiced. 
So the okay, so this is what's very interesting is that that Goenka Vipassana has a different interpretation of the four establishments from the Western Vipassana movement. And, but Goenka, just to, yeah, I think, refresh yeah. our memory, he, he was more based on Anapanasati, huh? He was basically right. his, his his approach of Anapanasati. Okay, so this uh, the okay, so in the last section of the literature review, I kind of give the histories of the different lineages. So. Mahasi Vipassana was focusing mainly on the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana, yes. Um, which is, Sati means mindfulness, Patana means establishment. So the literal translation is mindfulness establishment. It's come to be translated as the four establishments because it teaches mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of objects of mind. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's it doesn't tell you in order to do the practice. It doesn't tell you to start with sensation and then go to feeling. And it's just whatever your fo- it, it gives you a different. It gives you a map, and whatever is happening, you use it as a map. So that's the Mahasi Vipassana is coming from that. It's just open awareness, whatever arises, and you're using the four establishments as a map. Guwinka Vipassana frame, yeah, just huh? to, to to make it, I think more. Detail that's framed within the ethical framework also of, of Sheila. Yeah, that going the it's understood within the Mahasi Vipassana tradition that your the foundation of practice is keeping the precepts. Um, the goal is you're trying to overcome ignorance, craving, and aversion, and so keeping the precepts means you're you're not engaging in actions that are based on craving and aversion. So if you're trying to meditate, but you're not keeping your precepts, uh, you're not going to get far because if you're acting in such a way that you're creating a lot of craving and aversion, it defeats the purpose. You're trying to meditate, but your actions are going against it. So you want to have the foundation of the uh, the precepts um, to then help you do the inner practice of working with the craving and aversion. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so Goenka Vipassana is coming from the Lady Vipassana tradition. So Lady Sayada, um, he wrote, he mainly was focused on the Abhidhamma, and he mainly taught mindfulness of body sensations as the four elements. So being aware of the sensations in the body as the earth, air, fire, or water, um, understanding sensations as the four elements. So like earth is like hard or soft, fire is like hot or cold, air is like movement or stillness, Um, water is like, I'm not sure totally what it means. It's like fluidity and connection between different parts. And I don't know what the opposite of that is, but... (laughs) Um, Okay, and so so he he wrote a manual on meditation, and it's the only manual he wrote. The rest of it is just him talking about Abhidhamma. It, it is a commentary on the discourse on the full awareness of breathing, which is the Anapanasati Sutta, and that talks about the 16 exercises of mindfulness of breathing, and it's four ex, it's four sets of four exercises. Um. But 
he was using the Buddha Gosa understanding of meditation practice. So the 16 exercises, the first four is mindfulness of breathing, then mindfulness of the body. The second four is traditionally understood as you're cultivating the jhanas or the meditative absorptions. Um, so there's uh, mindfulness of um, ecstatic joy, mindfulness of more mellow bliss, um, mindfulness of mental formations, and then calming the mental formations. So that's understood as the four jhanas. But in the Buddhaghosa understanding, which is the later Theravada scholastic understanding, the jhanas are understood as mindfulness of a subtle object of meditation, which is called the meditation sign or the kasina. So you start with mindfulness of breathing, and then you get to where some subtle uh, object of mind, a mental phenomena arises. You go from the touch of the breath to a mental phenomena, and it's usually some subtle light, some small little light that's Colors. like a ball of cotton or some kind of, the uh, lady said, I guess different examples of different kind of subtle images that you see in your mind. And he says, you, you enter the first jhana when that, when that subtle sign comes up and you get focused on that and you're not thinking anymore. That's when you've entered the first jhana. And according to Buddha Gosa, when you're in jhana, you're aware of this subtle sign and you're no longer aware of your body and mind. And therefore, you cannot practice insight meditation because you're no longer able to practice mindfulness of the body, emotions, thoughts. So you're not able to do vipassana. So according to Buddha Gosa, you if you're doing insight, the jhana, that's samatha practice. And that's one thing that you do. And when you're doing vipassana, that's mindfulness of body, emotions, thoughts. Uh, and that's another thing. And so... According to Buddha Gosa, if you're doing jhana, you cannot do vipassana. According to the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn um, Sujato and Tanisaro Bhikkhu, the early Buddhist understanding of jhana is you are aware of your breathing and you're aware of your whole physical body. And that the actual object of meditation in the jhana is the breath and the whole body and so they they argue that there's no the distinction between samatha and vipassana is a later distinction and that within early buddhism that they don't make that distinction um so i'll get back to this later but um lady saida was using the buddha gosa understanding of vipassana and samatha and so what he said was he was part of a whole movement that, that like the British came into Burma and took over. Um, they they defeated the, the monarchy and um, took over in Burma. And so Lady Sayada led a populist movement against colonialism and he was fighting against the scientific materialism and the Christian missionaries. And so he wanted to have everyone 
have a basic understanding of the Abhidhamma teachings. And for those who are ready, he wanted people to practice meditation. And he wanted everybody to do it, lay people and monastics, everybody. Whereas before, it was mainly just monastics who would meditate. And even among monastics, it was a small number. So he is one of the pioneers of a, an engaged Buddhism. Yes. Awesome. He, I, I, call him the, I, I say he's the Mac Daddy of Vipassana meditation. Mm-hmm. He, he's the... Mm-hmm. He, He's a contemporary of Freud, and he argued for this mass populist movement where everybody's meditating. And in, his argument was that traditionally it's the king and the monastics that maintain Buddhism, but because the British came in and took over, there was no more monarchy, and the monastics were disempowered to a large degree. So he said it, it was up to the lay people to maintain Buddhism um so what he said is you practice mindfulness of breathing and you do it to get access concentration which means just enough to where you're mindful of the present moment your mind is not wandering anymore you're able to be with the four establishments of sensation feeling mind objects of mind And then once you've got access concentration, then you go directly into Vipassana meditation. And his Vipassana meditation was mindfulness of the body sensations as the four elements. And then based on the Anapanasati Sutta, the fourth uh, group of four practices, he taught that you should be aware of impermanence. And what that meant is you're aware of the impermanence of body sensations. You're aware of them as the four elements and you're aware of them always changing. And he said that that's the best thing to focus on in order to develop insight. So as opposed to getting into the three marks of existence, he was more focused just, he was more focused just on impermanence and in the context of body sensations. Okay, so then the lineage... His one of his top students is a lay practitioner who's a farmer named Utet, Sayaji Utet. And he um, sets up a meditation center on his rice farm outside of Rangoon in, in southern Burma. And one of his students is Uba Keen. And um, Uba Keen is an official in the government. So when 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 the Burmese uh are able to kick the British out and take over again. Uh, Ubakin is working for the government. And he learns Vipassana from Sayaji Utet. And then he starts teaching it in... So he in, teaches Goenka. Ubakin. Yeah, okay. yeah, he's teaching Goenka Vipassana. Yeah, yeah. So Goenka is his student, one of his students. Yeah. So Ubekin teaches Vipassana in the in the Burmese government, and then he also sets up the International Meditation Center in Rangoon, and that's for everybody, anybody who wants to can come there, um, including foreigners. So one of his top stu- one of his top students is Goenka, who's from India, but he was working in Burma, and so he learns Vipassana from Ubekin. And so the the Vipassana that Goenka teaches, the main framework he uses is the links of dependent origination. 
he's not even using the four establishments as the main framework. Okay. He's using the framework of the links of dependent origination. And so I think it's, I think Ubekin and him and him are the ones that added that in basically. Lady, Lady Side, I wasn't focusing on that so much. And I don't think uh, Sayaji Utet was either. So somewhere at some point, I think Ubekin and um, Goenka added the links into the practice. And Goenka is mainly focusing on um so so within er, so the links of dependent origination goes back to early buddhism it goes back to the samyutta nikaya um the 16 exercises has the four establishments in it but it's if you look at the exercises it's mainly using the links of dependent origination as its underlying theory basically and in the early Buddhist teachings from the Samyutta Nikaya, the links of dependent origination is is the core theory that the Buddha is using. Uh, the four establishments are there, but it's not as big of a deal. The links are a bigger deal. And there's a there's a there's a whole chapter in the Samyutta Nikaya on the links, um, and the kind of standard chain has twelve links that talks about rebirth over three lifetimes but there's other discourses in that chapter that um focus on chains with different numbers of links so in going vipassana they're basically focusing on a chain that the first link they're mainly focusing on is contact between sense base and sense object mm -hmm or between the mind and a mental object so that these are the six the six consciousnesses seeing hearing smelling tasting touching and thinking basically so he focuses on more uh, contact sensation yes so there's uh it's basically like a five link chain contact sensation meaning body sensation um craving which is a mental formation grasping which means you're acting on the mental formation um and becoming which is the embodied result of acting on the mental on that uh, mental formation and so if you look at the five links in more neutral terms you have contact between the six uh, sense bases and their objects you have sensation, and the sensation is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The sensation gives rise to an intention slash emotion, which is a which is a mental formation. In Pali, the word is sankara. In mm -hmm. Sanskrit, it's samskara. Okay, that that mental formation can lead to an action which in Pali is kama, in Sanskrit, karma. And what that means in this context means it's an action of body, speech, or mind. Yes. And then that action results in, it, there's, there is an, an embodied result of the action. And so becoming bhava, 
Becoming is the embodied result of the action. And then, so now you're in, so a quick way of saying how it works, like say you're at work, so your body and mind is at work and your sense space is, someone yells at you at work. So your your ear comes in contact with a sound. It gives rise to an unpleasant sensation in your body. The craving to yell back at the person Mm -hmm. arises there's anger and the craving to yell back at the person Mm -hmm. Uh, if you act on it you actually yell Mm -hmm. and then then you have to suffer the results of that you you you're reborn Mm -hmm. as someone who acted out on the anger okay so the you're in a new body and mind Mm -hmm. that is now experiencing a new set of uh, contacts between sense space and sense objects Mm, okay so you're, it's basically a circle that you're going through over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so Goenka Vipassana, this is their core theoretical framework they're using. And then the practice is you practice mindfulness of breathing at the nose to develop. You're, you're focusing on neutral to pleasant sensations. And that helps to calm and stabilize the body and mind. And it also helps you become sensitive to body sensation. You're focusing just on the sensation that the upper lip and the tip of the nose. So once you've done that practice, then you switch to doing the body scan practice. And that's a systematic body scan. You're moving your awareness through your body. And then the goal is to have awareness of an equanimity towards body sensation. And so if you have a pleasant sensation, when craving arises, you learned, oh, that's craving, and you let go of the craving, and you go back to the body sensation. Okay, so at this point of the practice, they're mainly focusing on upeksha. Yeah, they're trying to cultivate equanimity. Yes, exactly. Okay. Sati, awareness, well, sampajana, sampajana and upeka, um, yes. clear comprehension and equanimity. And it's kind of, at this point, to free oneself of the... Reactivity. Yes. So going G, I, so the shorthand I say GV, uh, Goenka Vipassana. Um, awareness of body sensations and then aware of the conditioned reactions that arise from the sensations. Mm-hmm. And so you're learning how to um, be aware of the reactions, let go of the reactions, and go back to the sensations. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you want to develop awareness of the sensations and equanimity toward the sensation because the argument is you get overwhelmed you when you have intense body sensations you get overwhelmed by them and then it gives rise to these reactions and you immediately fall into the reaction because you're overwhelmed by the sensation and so you can't help it you just fall into the reaction you fall into the emotion and then you act on it okay okay and so the goal of Goenka Vipassana is to develop awareness of sensation and equanimity to it. So you can be with intense body sensation and you're not overwhelmed by it. And then that way, when when the reactions of craving and aversion arise, you're able to just be with those reactions and let go of them. Uh, and so what they say is, first, you're letting go of reactions that have to do with what's going on in the present. 
And when you're able to do that, then deeper sankharas from the past are come up. And when those deeper sankharas come up, they also give rise to sensation in your body. And so again, you're practicing awareness of the sensation and then equanimity of the sensation so that you can let go of those deeper sankharas. And so they say that basically you have a store, you have a store or a stockpile of these old sankharas. And you you basically are just letting them come up and get released. Mm-hmm. And at the deepest level, what's known as the latent the latent defilements or the the fetters, uh, the deep level habit energies that cause rebirth, they are able to come up and get released. Okay. Ignorance, ignorance, craving, and aversion, and aversion. Yes. And so, Goenka Vipassana, the, the, the core framework is the links of dependent origination. The, he, Goenka started talking about the four establishments only after the Western Vipassana movement started getting into the four establishments. And then he, he made his own commentary on the uh, Mahasatipatthana Sutta. But his interpretation was you're always supposed to focus on body sensations. And um, whenever you have thoughts in your mind, they're giving rise to sensation in the body. And so you just notice what are the sensations that the thoughts are creating and go back to the sensations. <laughs> yes, for, for him, the sensation was where you needed to meet, meet the that's reactions. Where, that's where the rubber hits the road. Okay. So that's where you think the Western Vipassana movement, its influences comes from Goenka's teaching. No, no, no. Okay, this is, okay, so okay. Uh, the Western Vipassana movement started with Ram Das, Daniel Goleman, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. Yes, they went to India and they studied yeah, they were, Go- Goenka. Well, okay, they were all in India and uh, they were in Bodh Gaya and that's where they learned Mahasi Vipassana from Munindra, Anagarika Munindra, who was an Indian practitioner who learned Mahasi Vipassana in Burma from Mahasi. And they learned Goenka Vipassana from Goenka also. So they were they were receiving teachings from both lineages, both the Mahasi lineage, uh, which goes back to Mingun Saira, and the Goenka lineage, which goes back to Ubakin and uh, Lady Saira. Then when they established IMS in Massachusetts, that's um, <clears throat> Goldstein, Salzburg and Cornfield. In the beginning, IMS, they were teaching both Mahasi Vipassana and they had um, two, two Western students from Ubikin that were teaching the Ubikin practice, which is basically the Goenka Vipassana practice. So that was Robert Haver um, and, crap, I'm spacing her name. Um, she is a German woman that moved to the U.S., Ruth Dennison. And um, they were both teaching the Ubikin Vipassana at IMS. So in the early days of IMS, you had the, the Mahasi Vipassana, which is mindfulness of breathing in the belly, and then cognitively labeling whatever arises, um, and not privileging one foundation over the other. 
one establishment over the other. And then you had Goenka Vipassana, which was taught by Haber and um, Denison, and they were teaching mindfulness of breathing at the nose and then switching to the body scan where you're doing the systematic body scan and you're using the links of dependent origination as the core theory. Okay, so Goenka had a falling out with uh, Goldstein and Kornfield and Salzburg. Yeah, so they focus more on the, the Burmese tradition at the end. Well, they it's two different Burmese lineages. Mahasayada. Yeah, Mahasi, the Mahasi lineage and the Goenka lineage. The Goenka lineage is a Burmese lineage. They're both Burmese lineages. Um, but Goenka said you shouldn't charge money for it. And he said, the, basically, Ubakin and Goenka kind of, they didn't think the Mahasi teachings were as good as their teachings coming from Lady Sada and their own mm-hmm. development. Um, so even even Manindra himself, who was teaching Mahasi in India, he he wanted to teach he wanted to learn from Ubakin, but Ubakin said, Well, you've already learned from Mahasi who's a monk, and Ubakin's a lay person, and he said, You can't study under me as a lay person because you're already studying under a monk. And everyone in Burma will get pissed off if you do that. So but he said, You can you can study under Goinka. And while you're doing retreats with Goenka, I will able to spiritually transmit my energy to you um, in India. (laughs) So even Munindra himself was liking Goenka Vipassana even possibly more than the Mahasi one. But he was teaching Mahasi to uh, Goldstein, Salzburg, um, Ramdas, and Goldman. Um, So anyway, okay, so long story short... Learning with um, with Munindra, yes. They were just in Bodh Gaya, and they would basically just be. St- I think they were staying at the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya, and they were just kind of practicing on their own. Okay, so it wasn't like a, a day. like a continuous learning, like uh, how we learn with Thai, for example. There were more. Yeah, exactly. Goenka was doing the ten day retreats in Bodh Gaya. Whereas Munendra was just, he had students and they were just doing the practice on their own um, and they would meet with him every day. Okay. Yeah. And then Ramdas was asking him, okay, well, what's, you know, I like this teaching. I like the Satipatthana Sutta. What's like the deeper stuff? And so then Munendra told him, well, you got to check out the Vasudhi Maga from Buddha Gosa. That's the, the Burmese Abhidhamma coming from Buddhaghosa, Sri Lanka. And the Buddhist Publication Society, these um, Western monks had been translating. There's this monk named Nana Moli from England who was in Sri Lanka, and he translated Vasudhi Maga into English. So Goldstein and Goldman and Ramdas were really fascinated by the Abhidhamma. And they were really fast. And that, so that's the Buddha goes understanding of um, Vipassana meditation. And then they were, they were, they really liked the Mahasi Satipatthana system as, as the theory, as the core theory. So IMS gets founded. You've got both lineages being taught there. 
the Mahasi and the Goinka lineages, but there's a falling out between Goinka and Goldstein, Goldman, uh, Salzburg, Cornfield. So they basically decide, okay, we're going to go with the Mahasi Vipassana. That's going to be the lineage that we're going to go with. And then another thing that happened is John Kabat-Zinn was at IMS during a three-month retreat at IMS that he was taking where Robert Hover was the teacher, teaching Ubakin Vipassana, in which the body scan is the core practice. John Kabat-Zinn gets the idea for mindfulness-based stress reduction, which the core practice of MBSR is the body scan practice. The body scan practice comes from Ubakin and Goenka Vipassana. It does not come from the Mahasi lineage of Vipassana. So Kabat-Zinn basically takes the body scan from Goenka Vipassana, and then he filters out the teachings on the links of dependent origination. Yes, so there's an article also added elements of Zen and yoga into the MBSR. Yeah, he model, he did also. some Korean Zen with Sung San. And... Yeah, just a side note. Um, Tayak Tan trained with the uh, Sung San also during the right. days. So right, yeah. So it's a very uh, close. It's all interconnected. But the co- the core teaching of MBSR what separates it from other stuff is the body scan practice, mm-hmm. which Kabat-Zinn got from the Ubakin Goenka lineage. But according, there's a religious studies scholar named Daniel Stewart, who's written a biography of Goenka, and he, was, he also wrote an article about um, how Goenka Vipassana got changed over time. So he says, there's a quote from Kabat-Zinn saying he wanted to filter out anything that seemed uh, new age or kind of woo-woo or anything that had to do with rebirth or... To Buddhists. Yeah. He said he, he said he didn't want to come across as looking flaky, is what he was saying. Yeah. So... To the Americans. Yeah. his the, the mark, the... He, he, he got his PhD in molecular biology from MIT... And he, his idea was he wanted to create mindfulness-based stress reduction and use it at hospital. the University of Massachusetts Hospital. So he wanted a medical frame for mindfulness practice. So he took the body scan from Goenka Vipassana, and then he, he switched. Instead of using the links of dependent origination, he switched it to the Mahasi for establishments of mindfulness. And then... He and IMS in general interpreted the Mahasi teachings using an existential humanist worldview. So they filtered out the teachings on rebirth and liberation from rebirth and focused just on mindfulness practice, meaning learning how to be in the present moment, learning how to have greater wisdom and compassion for yourself and others, and then interpreting the teachings on the three marks as more uh, existential philosophy as opposed to a transcendent um, soteriological teaching about liberation from rebirth. Mm-hmm. 
So you could say that IMS, Spirit Rock, and MBSR taken together is the Mahasi theoretical framework, the Mahasi teachings on Satipatthana, and then the Goenka body scan without the teachings on the links. And we could add sort of like behind that is the worldview, the view and the existential view that sort of um, most modern people are faced with. Right, right. They they wanted the teaching to be something that um, someone within the United States who um, had a secular worldview who was approaching the world from the worldview of science and um, the humanities, meaning like hum humanism, uh, like nat naturalism, you know, like the natural world and understanding the world through the science and the arts and the humanities. They wanted the teachings to fit into that worldview. Um, and that, so their, their main market, um, Kabat-Zinn, Cornfield, uh, Goldstein, they're, they're baby boomers, post-war baby boomers. Um, and so their market were, was baby boomers who are into um, humanism, basically. That's the market they're okay. going for. Okay. Okay, so it's mainly just a, so I can follow you. Yeah. My own words here. You can correct me if I'm wrong too, like a upper white class middle American um where the hippies becomes the yuppies, so that this class educated that they're really directing this too, huh? I, yeah. The upper middle way, you could say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, okay. Yeah. Ramdas was a psychology professor at Harvard, and then he took LSD, and then he yes. he went to India, and he was fascinated by the Abhidhamma teachings and that version of Buddhist psychology. And then Daniel Goleman was at Harvard, and he got a grant after he graduated to go to India and basically okay. find out what Ramdas is doing. And so they really more or less shaped sort of like the vision of what. Meditation is at least in America at the moment, huh? For, I mean, yeah. Okay. The dominant view of what Buddhist meditation is in terms of Theravada Buddhism, which is framed as what the Buddha himself taught, yes, is the Buddha Gosa Mahasi Vipassana understanding of Buddhism. And Vipassana meditation as dry insight, meaning you just develop access concentration and you don't develop the absorptions and then you're using the four establishments as your framework and the teachings on the three marks everything is impermanent uh suffering when attached to a non-self is the the ultimate okay interpretive what would frame be the opposite of dry insight within buddha gosa the path of serenity means you develop the jhanas and that's when you're focusing on the meditation sign and you're not aware of your body and mind anymore, but you're in these okay. deep states of meditative absorption. Okay. And then that's supposed to help you 
deepen your concentration so that when you go back to the Vipassana, when you go back to the four establishments, you're going to more easily be able to get insight on the three marks of existence. Everything's impermanent, suffering, and non-self. Those insights are going to happen more easily and quickly as a result. Okay. Okay. But that's a later scholastic understanding of the absorptions. In early Buddhism, you are practicing mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of the body the whole time. You're never not doing that. And when you go into the jhanas, it basically just means you're experiencing a, an experience of bliss, then an ex, or sorry, you're experiencing ecstatic joy, and then bliss, and then equanimity. So the fourth jhana is equanimity after going after experiencing this spiritual uh, sensations. Yes. So they focus more on the the jhana with the form, the first four. Okay. And, the, the, uh, the first four sets up what you're paying attention to. Yes. Then the second set of four is the jhanas themselves. Um, and then the third set of four is after you've... So there's a, there's a discourse in the chapter on sensations in the Samyutta Nikaya where the Buddha says, the purpose of meditation is to let go of the carnal pleasures the worldly pleasures um, and to develop the spiritual pleasure that you get from the jhanas. So you wean, you wean yourself off of the carnal pleasure by experiencing the spiritual pleasure of the jhanas. Okay. And then you experience the more spiritual than spiritual pleasure of Nibbana. And the idea is that you're weaning yourself off of the spiritual pleasure of the jhanas to experience Nibbana. Okay. And that's what you're doing in the fourth establishment. Okay. But the point is you got to go through the spiritual pleasures of the jhana first to get to wean yourself of the more gross level craving and aversion. Okay. And then you wean yourself off of the more subtle level of craving and aversion. Um and in the in the fourth establishment you're focusing on impermanence and that basically means you're aware of the links of dependent narration, the process of the links as impermanent and 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 unsatisfactory. So it's like a slow process of letting go. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because equanimity in Vietnamese mm -hmm. is sa, which means to abandon, to let go. Right, right. So my so that that early understanding of Buddhism comes from um, the Thai forest tradition, which is um, in the forest of Thailand. Like while while the while Lady Sayadaw is getting the Burmese Vipassana movement going in Burma, Ajahn Moon is getting the Thai forest tradition going on in the forest of Thailand, and then you have a few lineages that come out of it: the Ajahn Chah lineage and the um, um, Ajahn Fong lineage. And so Tani Sarabhiku is with Ajahn Lee, who's from, sorry, Ajahn, Tani Sarabhiku is with Ajahn Fong, who is with Ajahn Lee. Ajahn Sujato is with Ajahn Cha. Um, and so they have done research on the Pali Canon, and they're the ones that have rediscovered the early Buddhist teachings in which the 16 exercises 
are understood within the framework of the links of dependent origination and this early understanding of the jhanas and the understanding of the four establishments as you're not aware of just whatever arises. It's it's a structure, but there's a sequence that you go through. It's not just aware of whatever's arising. Mm-hmm. So, so my main argument in the literature review is um, the Gawinka Vipassana and Thai forest traditions already have very developed teachings that focus on awareness of body sensation and focusing on letting go of reactive emotions that arise from body sensation. They already have the teaching that you're supposed to develop stability with pleasant and neutral sensations first before you're dealing with the reactions. And then you're supposed to metabolize the reactions. Um, so I'm saying they, they've already got the essence of what's in somatic experiencing, the theory and practice yes. of somatic experiencing. Yes, so that's kind of obvious. Right. So I'm arguing that the dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy in the U.S. has filtered that out and and or is just not aware of it because they wanted to filter out the teachings on the links of dependent origination and... To eliminate rebirth. Yeah, they don't want to talk about rebirth or liberation from rebirth because that will get in the way of their humanistic interpretation. The scientific do you think this is like what they truly believe because there's quite a it's a movement now with like a Stephen Batchelor mm-hmm. and and do you think this is something that they truly believe or is more to fit within the collective consciousness? To adapt the right. model for me it's just yeah it's interesting to understand how it, it shifted was it intentional in order to use it like a, as a skillful means to adapt the dharma you know mm-hmm. and, um, and i guess create another school of a uh, buddhism or meditation in this in this context because it's still within the buddhist framework that's mm-hmm. been taught i guess but from an more worldview perspective of science and uh, existent- existentialism. Yeah. Okay, so in my chapter three, which we'll get into next week, that's um, when I talk about my methodology. And I, I created a theoretical framework that I call the three modes of knowledge production. And so I'm saying early Buddhism that deals with the 16 exercises the jhanas, the links, is an early yogic mode of knowledge production that arose within the city-states of India. And it's an oral tradition. Um, and that that's, that's a, one mode of knowledge production. Then, then there's a later scholastic mode of knowledge production that happened within Buddhism. Different scholastic uh, teachings arose. So one is the Theravada scholasticism that Buddha Gosa is is the figurehead for, mm. and so that's teaching the Abhidhamma and the the three marks of existence. Then you have the Yogacara scholasticism that teaches the eight consciousnesses. Mm. Then you've got the Madhyamaka scholasticism that's teaching the teachings on emptiness, and so that's scholastic mode of knowledge production that involves reading and writing. 
and it may or may not be directly connected with a yogic lineage of practice. Yes. It may or may not be connected with the earlier teachings. Yes. Yes. So I think what the Western Vipassana movement encountered, they they were drawn to the Buddha Gosa scholastic teachings. And then they imported that into what I'm calling this third mode of knowledge production, which is the modern scientific mode of knowledge production. Mm. So that's that's nation states um, using science, arts, and humanities as their main worldview, scientific materialism as the main worldview. So the Western Vipassana movement, basically they took, they were drawn to the Theravada scholastic teachings because it was something that could fit easily within the scientific worldview because you can mm-hmm. you can talk about impermanence suffering and no self and it easily fits into the scientific worldview and you can talk about the four establishments and that easily fits within the scientific worldview the early books by goldstein and um cornfield will mention the 12 links and they will speak a little bit about rebirth and liberation from rebirth but the over time, the links just kind of fall away and don't get talked about much anymore. And rebirth and liberation from rebirth don't get talked about much anymore. So it, it, it maybe maybe they personally were open to it, but just the market wasn't interested in it, so they left it out. Um, and then you have Cabot's in. And MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, gets gets used for research in neuroscience. There's tons of neuroscience uh, experiments using MBSR, people doing MBSR to find out what's going on in their brain while they're doing MBSR. Another, uh, uh, Goldman has two protégés that are big in the neuroscience world. One is Richard Davidson and the other is Dan Siegel. And they both get way into studying the brain and what happens to people when they're meditating. So there's this whole field of interpersonal neurobiology that gets developed based on studying mindfulness within the scientific materialist worldview. So over time then, the Western Vipassana movement, you got Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, Mindful Self-Compassion, all of this research into neuroscience and meditation practice, and then mindfulness-based therapies like um, ACT, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and then the somatic trauma therapies such as somatic mm-hmm. experiencing. So it's this huge conglomeration of Buddhist <laughs> Vipassana teachings, uh, secular mindfulness teachings, and interpersonal neuroscience. A lot of the Western Vipassana movement teachers are psychotherapists themselves. Mm-hmm. So whether they believe in rebirth or not, or whether they believe in the links or not, it got filtered out. And the the dominant implicit message is 
the the four establishments um is what the buddha taught mm -hmm. and this existential humanist framework is the framework that they're teaching mm -hmm. and some of them will even go as far as to say that the buddha was a humanist basically that the buddha himself mm -hmm. was an existential philosopher mm -hmm. um so yeah, you could say the extreme and the extreme edge of that view is that the buddha himself didn't teach rebirth or liberation from rebirth mm -hmm. um but I would just say, in general, the overall center of gravity was wanting to fit within science and and wanting to cater to a market that was within that worldview. Um, and this is where it gets interesting because the, the trauma therapy itself arose from the anti-clerical movement in France with Charcot and Freud and um, uh, Pierre Janet, I think that's his name, and um, it was part of the anti-clerical movement, which was trying to overcome feudalism by overcoming uh, Christianity. But that was quickly, as if I, from my own understanding, uh, Freud, like when he studied like hysteria, that was quickly suppressed because he realized that most of the people that, that was... Uh, suffering from this came from uh, abuse within the, the the family and most of the people who were funding his research was coming from he didn't want to kind of like um bite the hand that fed him more or less because uh he, yeah. he was digging into something that was touching like the i guess like uh deep trauma within the different um uh, households so that was yeah so, that was quickly left aside for a while until uh, yeah. PTSD, huh? Yeah. With this, so. Um, so you had the French Third Republic, which was, the there was a socialist revolution in France. The, the, the French Third Republic is like the third time the socialists got into government, basically. Um, and there was, so Charcot was in charge of a hospital in Paris, and he's considered the the father of neuroscience. And Janet, Freud, and William James were studying under him. And the French Third Republic, they wanted to get women on their side to go against the monarchy and to go against the church. So they had a campaign where they were going to be able to explain hysteria through science so that they could get the support of women because up until then women who had hysteria were seen by the church as someone who's possessed by demons or they're sinful or whatever. And um, so they wanted to replace the Christian view of hysteria with a scientific view. So there was basically this mass research at this hospital um, and the hospital had a lot of women who had been sex workers or, traumatized in some way and they they were kind of the dregs of society and so they, they were doing um research so basically psychoanalysis gets developed um as part of that project and so both Janet and freud figure out that hysteria comes from traumatic experiences in childhood yes, yes. and then freud he goes back to austria to vienna and his research 
figures out that in particular it's women who've had um, sexual abuse as, as a child, that that's the mm -hmm. cause of hysteria. So he writes a paper called the ideology of trauma. Yes. And he says, this is it. I figured it out. I've discovered it. But when he publishes the paper, the whole uh, community, the ruling class community in Vienna are like, shut the fuck up, dude, because yeah. uh, hysteria is a widespread phenomena in Europe. Mm. If what you say is true, it means sexual abuse is a widespread phenomenon in Europe. Mm. Uh, that can't be true. Mm. You got to shut up. Mm. Yeah. And Freud is right at the beginning of trying to establish himself professionally and to establish the field of, of Western psychoanalysis. So he says, oh, uh, never mind. It, uh, that, that's not really the cause of hysteria. And then he starts just analyzing dreams and Freudian slips. Mm. And then he talks about Oedipal complexes and basically just uh, turns his back. Yeah, so so for, uh, the reason why I brought that up, because I think it correlates to maybe the, the intention of maybe um, why the Western Vipassana movement would kind of like um, integrate a worldview within the, the Buddhist practice, I think, because it just might open up a lot of things. But I think um, it's a question that is interesting to see what happens because I think the more, I think this is just at the beginning because I think the more we see people meditating with deeper experience that's kind of like resolved a little tease, then the, I think this only time will tell, huh? I think how, because I think things change so quickly, so, so fast, mm -hmm. and even, I don't know if it's like in the Book of Eights, the Buddha was clear about talking about different forms of rebirth, Yeah. from my, my own readings, you know, when yeah. he talks about the, the, the seven worlds we're going to be reborn in, Yeah. So, but I guess in from that Western Vipassana framework, we, we look at that more of, more archetype, which is how, Tai, sometimes he teaches that the the seven rebirths, uh, like the hungry ghosts, uh, the world of the devas, the the different hells, and in that context, it reminds me of Dante's Inferno actually, and the different stages. It, yeah, it's very yeah. similar to yeah the different uh, stages of heaven and the different stages of hell. But Dante Dante doesn't speak about codependent arising or transcending those worlds either. Yeah, yeah. Which I I think maybe. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that in as a side note because it, no, it's very important because so, is it what the what I was uh, you know, Ford's, I you know Ford's, <laughs> he was he, he he had to shut up because he, he wanted to really develop his work and that that work came up years later, you know, I mean much 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 later when right uh, we saw war veterans coming back from the war and different works in the. I guess in the seventies on on trauma, but but that was more like middle T trauma. And I mean, we're talking about abuse within the household, within the within yeah. the middle class family. Like you said, that means sexual abuse was happening everywhere. So you really needed to 
quiet that down, you know? So I'm thinking more like in this context, how, because rebirth is such a vast subject, you know? And, and I think there's, of course, there's one, the Western world who we have, I think, more of a influence from existentialism, which is like mm -hmm. a, a form of nihilism where there's nothing, nothing after, which for me is like, of course, there's, I think there's, uh, there's fruits. I think the fruits it has given is like women's rights. I mean, Sivon Vel and Satre, I think they, yeah, like the good life now, you know, but at the, the sh different shadow elements, what we, we see is very, I think there's questions to be asked because um, uh, within the ecology, ecological context also, within the uh, global balance, you know, because we're, we're sort of kind of living this one life and at the same time fulfilling our own desires, you know, and we're, we're not in conscious of a bigger context, which I think most wisdom tradition they have. I mean, yeah. we don't think within this one life, but we think even generations after, you know, um, what's going to be left. So I think at the same time, it's something interesting. I'll, I'll be, I'm, I'm very fascinated to see what would happen if we keep on practicing will these questions arise? You know, I think we're kind of like heading there maybe s slowly because um, I just wanted to add different things. Uh, also, what was what you touched on already because um, I think the work of Seaburn Fisher could be added on, on neurofeedback and the fear-driven brain. Yeah. I think... Um, on, on trauma and also um you haven't spoke about uh, Thai's model yet also and i think that would be right i think that we're leading to that also you know, how how the yogacara philosophy is uh, applied and from Thai's Thai's model of um, a mindfulness a mindfulness framework which i think englobes all these different um different uh, secular mindfulness movements already mbsr mbct and that's interesting that's that was something that i th thought of when you were speaking and another thing was like how were the this is just a, a personal question is were the different notion of compassion being used in the because now i mean we're talking about like mindfulness self-compassion mm-hmm but back then, none of this was really being mentioned, huh? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon Salzberg is the one that has focused mainly on uh, meta, meta meta practice, loving yeah, kindness sure. practice, and then that has been further developed by Tara Brock and Krista Neff and Chris Germer, I think Chris Germer, Germer. I'm not sure. If yes, with the mindfulness, um, self compassion, and what Taylor brought calls a radical acceptance. Yeah, yeah. So they've done, yeah, a lot of work of integrating loving kindness and compassion into meditation practice and into therapy. Um, then 
So I wanted. Okay, so then you have Freud who discovers the cause of trauma, one of the main causes as uh, sexual abuse during childhood. He gets uh, repressed. And then, so Judith Herman, who's um, like the godmother of 20th century, 21st century trauma therapy, basically. Um, so her book, Trauma and Recovery, is like a seminal work that came out, I think, in the mid-90s, I'm thinking. And she, she, the first chapter is a history of trauma, the, the study of trauma. So she gives the whole history of um, Freud and Charcot and Janet and William James. Um, and so one of her main arguments is that in order to be able to see trauma, recognize it and respond to it, there has to be a social context that allows that to be possible. And so she says that Freud had the discovery, but the social context basically patriarchy and um doesn't work yeah yeah they, it, they it suppressed work it. In that, in those conditions yeah. yeah okay so she says it was a combination of the anti-war movement the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement um in the 20th century is what created the social context to allow for trauma to be recognized again mm-hmm. and so for her personally, it meant her and other feminist therapists who were doing therapy for women and lots of women coming to them telling them they were sexually abused as children. Uh, for the anti-war movement, it's um, people like Bessel van der Kolk, who's working with veterans, um, talking about their experiences of war and shell shock, and then that the understanding of PTSD comes out from there as well. So... The thing is, they're still part of the anti-clerical movement of Charcot and Freud, which began as being against the dogmatic, patriarchal, sexist, homophobic elements of Christianity. And so they they conflated Christianity with um, trauma and patriarchy, basically. And so they they saw science as a refuge and a play, a source of liberation. Mm. Um, so you could say then that this anti-clerical movement is what mainstream trauma therapy comes from. And mainstream trauma therapy is very rooted in existential humanism and civil rights movement, women's liberation movement. And so they've tended to conflate spirituality, esoteric things, rebirth, anything like that. They're they're kind of conflating that with religion in general. That it, in other words, it's seen as like a dissociation a dissociation from reality mm-hmm. and kind of a betrayal of having solidarity with people who are being traumatized. So it if you want to like, yeah go ahead. Yeah. It sounds like a a certain trauma that they were traumatized by christianity yes exactly (laughs) exactly it's like the christianity traumatized us so bad that (laughs) That, we we didn't want the other extremes into the people that are very rationalistic and anything that can't be proven is like um i think the expression to throw the baby out with the bathwater exactly maybe that's sort of like i think that's the difficulty of where we're where we're at because we have this divided world between like spirit 
spirituality and science. Yeah. Which yeah. is, I think we had, had to find conditions to reconciliate or, or yeah. other, I guess, other movements that could apply, I guess, both. Yeah. Both frameworks. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's like, Trauma therapy as part of the anti-clerical movement has been good at critiquing and disrupting white heteropatriarchy based on um, dogmatic religious doctrine. Yeah. Oops. Or I think also maybe it had its purpose for its time at the same time. I think everything has its function in terms of period, yeah. time, and context. Yeah. yeah, the 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 strength of existential humanism has been its ability to focus on the human within the individual single lifetime within a naturalist worldview. And so it's been very good at recognizing and responding to trauma as part of women women's liberation movement. Um, civil rights movement, anti-war movement, queer liberation exactly. movement. Yeah, so more of like a democratic, social uh, yes. fruits. Right. It's bared good fruits on that on that level. So you can say, um, yeah, yeah the, the strength is it's focused on the goal of greater welfare and happiness within the present lifetime and dealing with small, medium, and big T trauma. Um, and then creating the interpersonal neurobiology and the social context of therapy as the way to deal with it. The weakness has been not able to recognize rebirth and liberation from rebirth and also not able to um, yeah, deal with the the supernatural, so to speak, or things that can't be explained by empirical science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I see they call themselves the Western Vipassana movement as kind of like in response to the Burmese Vipassana movement. Okay. But you could argue the Burmese Vipassana movement, which started with Lady Saida at the same time that Freud was discovering trauma. The Burmese Vipassana movement was trying to overturn the authority of both scientific materialism and dogmatic Christianity. And its focus was on rebirth and liberation from rebirth. Uh, it wasn't as focused on individual trauma and um, yeah, neuroscience to deal with individual trauma. So I see it's like, like we, we need to have, we need to have both and we need an integrated map and an integrated approach. Yes. Yes. Sorry, I'm like speaking so much because I'm like, uh, I feel no, like no, I'm... So I, I guess like <laughs> from this point, you know, I can, yeah. so I can really follow your your thesis because huh? I think you've done a lot of detailed work. So your your argument now, now is like more for both the Western model has its function. Mm -hmm. For you, it lacks uh, sort, sort of like the addressing... The, the the big questions i guess yeah. like uh, what what happens after death uh, rebirth uh, um it's good to precise the difference in, in the, i guess in the buddhist perspective between rebirth and reincarnation also 
because I think some some people might misunderstand these two words. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I think in the Hindu framework, the reincarnation is as a soul, a permanent soul that is reborn, but more in the Buddhist context, that's more of a consciousness that, mm-hmm. that's being um, according to our karma. What 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 sort of um, destination that we will be determined, huh? Um, yeah. So there's not no permanent entity that will will be reborn. I think that's sort of like that's a question that comes with my different relationship with people practicing. You know, and and for me, it's interesting because like here at the center, there are questions people ask about rebirth. Yeah. And w- w- how I try to frame it is within my own. I guess I created sort of like a unifying theory between the what we call like the secular model and the Buddhist model because I think uh, we we need them both. Like I said, um, uh, trauma was spoken about fifty years ago and it was repressed. And I think um, once we, this is why I'm I'm sort of like questioning. Like, what are the intention of the Western Vipassana movement? Because I'm pretty sure they are practitioner also, uh, how they understand co- consciousness. This is something maybe we can have a discussion with one of them <laughs> to to understand better. I think there's probably been dialogues already, but um, yeah, for for me and the in the integral model, there is something that unifi- unifies it. I, for me, I think it's mindfulness, concentration, and insight. And I think if we apply that, just of investigating the five skandhas, then of course, like uh, a trauma will come up. I don't think they have a choice, you know, like you're describing how different things will arise, our unconscious and subconscious mind. And, um, and I think that that's where different approaches are there to help whether it's regardless like you said if it's buddhist or within a a therapeutical framework that there is different um, practices that help to address these different um, suffering that may arise huh um what i'm what i'm trying to explore now is like sort of like where's ethics in that which I think the Buddhist framework and any other contemplative framework they they answer, and I think now there's a new mindfulness movement. I think mindfulness-based value that that's come up with. A, I think somebody that was I don't know. I'm so, I'm very bad with names, huh? but he was a student of Thai, right. also, but trying to integrate in the secular movement <laughs> mindfulness-based value because we see that if that's missing, then I mean, we're not really addressing deep, deep trauma either, because without all forms yeah. of suffering arises from trauma. I think we're deep down heavily traumatized human beings, regardless of birth or cultural context. <laughs> so, uh, and and I think um, like in this framework, I send you like the the diagram, but like like you said, how do we create more integral? workings to address different forms of suffering that will arise 
according to where people are at on their path. And I, I don't think it's sort of like, um, this is where it might be interesting to dialogue. Are we create, trying to create new collective views? Like in America, every, everyone believes in God. <laughs> and, um, and I think that view is one view of reality, but it's not, uh, the, the one that everyone should believe in. And I think in the West, in the mindfulness movement, there's views that are being created, which is, um, of course, I think there, there will always be one view that would dominate, unfortunately, which, which is now, I think the existential, um, neoliberal yeah neoliberal yeah <laughs> and a scientific rational mind that dominates i think uh, modern society now but I, I don't think they have all the the answers either you know i think that um, a lot of suffering is being created because we're not looking at these different blind spots and i think in the integral model eventually is like how we apply what Thai calls like engaged Buddhism mm -hmm. to the, the, the ecological, the family context, the community context. And, and I think the last, which is like most spiritual contemplative tradition they address, which secular mindfulness doesn't, which is like a transcendental, transcendental. Yeah. Realm. It's interesting because the Western mindfulness, we talk about non-dualism. Yeah and uh choiceless awareness but i think um if the ego is really transcended you know then of course then i think different i'm curious to see how what is the definition of non-duality in this context is it just uh non-duality with sensations you know bear mm -hmm. with sensations perceptions or does it deal with, because I think the fifth of Skanda is consciousness. Yeah. And it really hasn't addressed, I guess, consciousness and perceptions on the mm -hmm. deeper way yet. I think um, mm -hmm. uh, the body, the sensations, uh, mental formations, I think that's where we're at now. Um, but it really hasn't addressed uh, perceptions and consciousness yet, which I think the Buddhist framework does from this point. Yeah. This yeah. is where I think, um, just to, again, this is, a, I don't mean to like, um, I have a lot of res uh, a deep respect for different tradition, but I think it's a little bit ahead of the game. You know, I think what, what we're working on now, they're going to sort of like, um, question later. Because I think the more people we have that's meditating, the more different, um, like we, as we can see now in the secular mindfulness movement, different things would be addressed, like compassion, uh, trauma. And I think it's, the question is how, like at least when people ask me, what about rebirth? I think mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of leave it open. I don't say like the, there's no rebirth. I don't say there's, you know, there's just yeah. this, this life. I said, your consciousness is very powerful. And the more you understand it, the more you're going to be, see different uh, realities, you know, of our, of our universe, of our, of our mind. So 
it's because it's deeply subjective at the same time. I think that's the the difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very strange because when you go to Thailand and Vietnam, uh, I mean, the notion of rebirth is sort of like uh, it's very strange to think that this is only one life, you know. So I, I think, uh, and yeah. even uh, I have friends that work in the indigenous culture, and. Uh, the notion of uh, the spirit land is something. So this less of a, a fear, I guess. Whereas the the existentialist, the 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 caught within this, um, I guess, nihilistic mode, where mm-hmm. I think if we don't try to reconciliate with the big T, now I think big T's is more ecological uh, discrimination. Uh, death, what happens after death, uh, there won't be any peace within that, which is like, I think the the thing that's driving all sorts of disharmony in society. We're not mm-hmm. addressing these uh, big T's, which I think the the contemplatives, they, they do. But unfortunately, I think the to summarize we kind of like thrown the baby out with the bathwater yeah in the scientific yeah. world i i guess it's get, being is more open now because people are meditating mm-hmm. at the same time yeah i'm just seeing what of your response to that yeah um and i and i guess because you're living in america like i said also i'm i'm living in europe and uh, i think that's also a different um dynamic also because um yeah 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 i think yeah there just needs to be more inclusiveness of different traditions and different schools of thought different modes of knowledge production different ways of seeing things so yeah right now trauma therapy has just focused on the humanistic understanding of uh mahasi vipassana and so the the Thai forest understanding of early Buddhism with the links of dependent origination hasn't been brought in. What you've mentioned and what we will also talk about in future episodes is um, Thai's teaching on the eight consciousnesses, the Yogacara teachings on the eight consciousnesses um, hasn't been brought in to the dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy. Um, and then, yeah, the indigenous traditions, indigenous worldviews that um, have their own way of body-centered way of dealing with suffering and also that recognizes rebirth, liberation from rebirth. Um, So it's almost like I feel like we just, we need to have a more practical approach where we can just be agnostic as to whether rebirth is true or not and just focus on the practices themselves and then kind of like how an acceptance commitment therapy is kind of like you just you try on a way of seeing things and see how that works for you you know so what happens if you're just open to rebirth being true how does that relate to your experience of consciousness you know if you're open to scientific materialist you being true how do you experience consciousness as a result of it you know and so I think, yeah, just being open, like 
there's there hasn't been any scientific experiment that has conclusively proven that consciousness can be reduced to matter like so it's it's scientific materialism really is I, I see it as another religion because it's it's based on a belief about what happens after you die but there's no actual evidence about it <laughs> it's it's more just because we've been able to correlate internal experience with activity in the brain we think we can reduce the experience to activity in the brain i, I think it was uh, alan watts that made alan wallace excuse me that made yeah the alan that, wallace yeah yeah alan v wallace he said well if there's if at the end of your life that's that's it you know you're, you're right. reduced to, to nothing then you can't come back to say anything about it so you can't prove it <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i found that very funny i mean but, right. but i think he tends to lean more on the yeah the, the, the buddhist uh view that, that there there is a rebirth but i think for me yeah i think openness that's what inclusiveness is yeah. quite important in this time and i think the more we, we divide ourselves in different views for me which is a what the Buddha was trying to teach to be free of views, you know, I think at least from my own understanding of Thai's teaching is to even to be free of Buddhist views. I mean, at the end, you know, scientific views or, or whatever, because that might be the, the obstacle that keeps us from really, I guess, working as a really collective conscious. Cause I think awakening yeah. is not an individual matter. And, um, because I'm warning, I might, I think this might be addressed further along the line. Also, um, the role of like the four nutrients in trauma. Yeah, I guess like a continuous practice, a, a community, and I think that's sort of like things that came up in my mind when I was listening to you. Yeah, I, I have, I have, the, I have the impression now where we are so was we're kind of like cooling the fr flames of big t trauma which is uh death everyone is afraid of death and unless we come to peace with that regardless of through a scientific view uh i don't know if the scientists are at peace with death rationalistic so it might be well, like or how that affects how living this life now, you know, yeah, because we're, we're pushed by a lot of our unconscious fear. Why? Why do people consume? Why do we repress trauma? Why do we still discriminate? You know, I mean, we, we talk about a lot of the, about awakening, and awakening is based on non-discrimination. So, what? Why in the world where so many people are meditating? we talk about what is right mindfulness. So there's lots of things to, I guess, um, question and explore at this moment, because for me, just after listening to you, I, th I think it's like, we're trying to head towards big T, t trauma, little by little, it's sort of like, <laughs> and come to come to terms with that, you know, and it just it reminds me of like, I've been reading a little bit about William James' work mm -hmm. recently yeah. also to try to understand better like Western psychology. But um, after a while when 
I guess science came, his voice was sort of forgotten. And I think he mm -hmm. wrote, he said, actually, religion has its role. And uh, because what what we're all afraid of will come reconcile with our own existence, you know? And yeah. that's where religions, they do have a role. And somewhere along the line, because we we got caught on the rationalistic wave that um, that's that's been lost. And I think um, Ken Werber's work does shine light on it. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing, my only critical sort of like um, comment I would have on Ken Werber's work is we, we don't know what would be because um, he, he looks at religions in different like like archaic, uh, superstitious, contemplative, mystical, th these different levels. Yeah. But I'm starting to question even that, you know, because I, like I said, I, I, I do practice in different Buddhist traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, more, more Zen, but mm -hmm. I practice within the Pure Land uh, esoteric school of my mm -hmm. grandmother that... Um, the, this school of Buddhism is like sort of like a similar to the Tibetan Book of the Dying, the Bardo. It's mm -hmm. really how how do you transition? Because li life is a phase of transitions, phase of Bardo, not only big Bardos, like, uh, but small Bardos that we live in, in our daily lives. Yeah. Uh, Thai teaches actually from one activity after another is a transition. Periods of birth and rebirth, yeah, on the on the subtle level that we see in the Abhidharma, for example. But um, for for me, it's more like yeah. How how do we integrate things? And not being too fast to judge it. Yeah. Because what I realize is like, again, I'm just talking about from a first person experience, my own experience. Um, when my grandmother was a practitioner in this Pure Land Vietnamese Buddhist tradition, and she died in peace. Yeah. And for me, it's like she's one of the very few people that I've met in my life that um, had no problems with death. So, so I mean, <laughs> it's quite um, shocking because she she only practiced like the the last fifteen years of her life because she knew her time was coming. You know, I guess like mm. after you hit fifty. A lot of we get, we get a lot of uh, neurosis that's being developed because we know our time will come, you know. Yeah. And she was one of the few people in my life that smiled at yeah. death. You know? Wow. And um, and I think this is in part because she understood what we call deep Buddhism. Yeah. Deep Buddhism is based on, like you said, this transition. I mean. Why did the Buddha practice? Because of old age, birth, sickness, and death, you know? And, uh, and I think, uh, I think that secular movement will get there. 
depends on how how well we practice. But I think these problems sooner or later they will be addressed because um, when people start being becoming aware of their dream state, I think um, more uh, unconscious states of the mind also. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think there ha- have been. I guess at this point now, I would like to have a dialogue with someone who's at that level of um, awareness. You know, mm-hmm. so that's why it would be interesting to to speak to like um, these d- different Buddhist teacher. I think a dialogue would be very interesting, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't claim myself to belong to any camp either i'm I'm quite open um i think the most important part is like at the end of the day is is it answering to different forms of suffering that's arising in society regardless of what because i think there's some things that the secular movement have addressed that maybe the buddhists haven't you know i think Mm -hmm. um, like ecology i mean i don't I think there have been different Buddhist movement based on the ecology, you know? mm-hmm. but overall, in more engagement in society. I mean, where where are the Buddhist politicians, for example? <laughs> and yeah. so I think there's different things that, if we really look at codependent arising, how mm-hmm. everything is arising together, you know, and Tai really talks about. The next Buddha is like a, it's a, co- a collective. It's not one person. Yeah, I think that's where we're sort of trying to trying to head it. You know, but I think it's difficult if there's one definition of what mindfulness is or what Buddhism is to really. After we just create different ivory towers, we have different yeah. forms of Buddhism, saying which 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 one is the you know the right way you know so yeah and then daniel stewart he talked about when he was talking about kevin then um developing mindfulness based stress reaction so he, he calls it medicalized mindfulness so, <laughs> uh, so i think well, yeah one of the issues is like with uh, as buddhist um practitioners as buddhist teachers it's clear we Buddhism already has theory and practice that's very sophisticated and well developed, and it could it can be used to recognize and respond to trauma. You know, it can be it can be informed by neuroscience. It can be informed by trauma therapy. But what I think is Buddhist ministers should be trained using trauma informed Buddhist theory and practice um to help respond to individual and collective trauma so that it mm-hmm. it's not just the medical field and it's not just like one-on-one therapy that can be very expensive um so it's like yeah i think the two sides have to start sharing more with each other basically like like buddhism has to get more into counseling and more into dealing with interpersonal abuse and trauma. So like talking about the five precepts as precepts you've broken or they've been broken against you. Um, And then 
So we, we need the social context of therapy, but I'm arguing that it could be Buddhist spiritual care, Buddhist counseling by Buddhist ministers um, that can be doing that work. It doesn't, it doesn't just have to be therapists using Buddhist informed yes, psychotherapy. Yes. It can be Buddhist religious workers using trauma therapy informed Buddhist spiritual care. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I do feel because if we don't frame things in the a collective stru- structure, you know, then I think that even though somebody may be doing a, a sort of therapy, mm-hmm. it's sort of like cooling the flames, but it's not really putting out the flame, if you will. And I think all these different forms of trauma are being addressed. It's, it's like we're, we're sort of like cooling the flames, but unless we have more like an, an ethical framework, um, Mike, Again, I go back to different things that I mentioned mm-hmm. before, huh? uh, different structures, microstructures. Yeah. We can really uh, promote like a, a conscious evolution mm-hmm. where we're, we're heading towards more like a pro-social world that's less on trying to resolve different trauma, but really evolving consciously, you know, instead of re- regressing yeah. on a global scale, which is where... I think it's all to co-create, actually, you know, because the potential of co-creation is there. It depends on uh, how it's done. Another thing that really kind of like um, resonates in me at this moment, because I went back to Plum Village in May, mm-hmm. and we had this dialogue with um, David Sloan, who was the evolutionary biologist. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he was interested in looking at the Plum Village model. Mm-hmm. And um, and what we realized at the end, even in Plum Village community, they're creating even smaller communities called the, the beloved community. Because we feel like, and I was again joking, I said, we've, we've been experimenting this for this for 10 years now, because um, within smaller models, then you have a sort of like the freedom now to see how to apply the different healing, the trauma and these different levels, they work. And I think the big trauma is how to work with that is the more you see like different communities that are arising, that are, has an ethical framework that, mm-hmm. that has people that, more or less uh, reconciliated with these things and not reproducing them, the more that we see that this is more, sort of like the way we need to head. But as long as like we're doing like um, trauma work and we go back in society, of course, all these things will be re-triggered and we're back sometimes to square square one, square zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can't even yeah. see, I mean, what use is it, it to resolve little and big T trauma where, and I go back to this quote from Krishnamurti, he always says, what use is it to, to adapt to a, a maladaptive society? And I think even though we all know that, I guess it's much more complex as what we might think. Different works like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Frederick Laloux. Mm. He speaks about organizing uh, structures 
Mm-hmm. As we we talk about, he he's influenced a lot by Ken Wilber's integral vision also. Mm-hmm. But the hypothesis is why do conscious people leave the the unhealthy structure? Like a, for us, it was like we were left to go into a monastery. Yeah. Um, or for people people work working in big corporates, they kind of leave and kind of like go back and be coaches after to try to. But I think that's sort of like wishful thinking. Also, mm-hmm. this is why I abandoned big structures. Uh, mm-hmm. We were working. I was coaching like big structures before trying to uh, integrate mindfulness in this. And I, yeah. more or less, the, again, I don't. I don't want to give up on them. But I, I was kind of like wasting my time because I, I saw that we can do much more things much faster within a small structure uh, in terms of everything, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. how we want to deal with the, the environment, how we, how we want to deal with the trauma, how we want to deal with suffering. It just goes much more fast. And we realize from this dialogue with David Sloan, he was just saying a lot of evolution happens within the group. It's not within yeah. the, the big institutions. Mm-hmm. Or it's not when the, the collective context, which is, which is kind of like paradoxical because everyone's trying to change the big institution. So, yeah, I guess yeah. it needs both level. We need, we need top, bottom, bottom up level to, to, to go towards a kind of like a conscious evolution. Yeah. Like approaching it from different angles. I'll trying to get to the same goal, but approaching it from different angles. Yeah. And for me, I guess as long as the the view is is clear, you know, I I think that's a good start. Yeah. Because for me, on my integral vision of my mindfulness, I would try to share when we go to a not the non dualistic level. This is where I I really share that the contemplatives for me. They have the answer to this, not the scientists. <laughs> the most... they're, they're, they're the ones smiling at the end of their lives, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I think this is where I think this is where it's rich because it, it, it's there already. It's not something we need to discover, but it's more something we need to practice and deepen. And, um, Sort of like integrate where we are in our right. wherever it's cultural context we are to skillfully yeah. use that. But it seems to me at this point that the secular mindfulness model it can't answer the big T more right. or less, or or has it? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I think we, we should. That should, should I, I go on later, huh? We can. We can. Uh, yeah, I think we should wind down. But I would we say, yeah, keep I, it as an open question then. Right, I would agree. Dealing with it as a collective historical phenomena, trauma as historical trauma, like the trauma of colonialism, the trauma of imperialism, trauma of neoliberalism. That's the collective uh, trauma, and so yeah, the the. The medical model of private healthcare hasn't 
been able to deal with that. And then, yeah, just how that, how imperialism has um, been destructive to indigenous and yogic traditions of spirituality and practice. So I feel like there has to be a restoration of like shamanic and yogic worldviews and traditions. Um, and so then, and then, yeah, that it's got to be a collective thing we're doing. So it's both, it's both the collective historical trauma as well as what we're calling the deep trauma of uh, samsara itself, rebirth itself, that it, the secular mindfulness hasn't been able to respond to both of those things. Because I, I have the impression, again, this is just from my own limited perception, is like what you call the shamanic tradition, they're isolated from the world. It's yeah. like they're either to preserve what they know or either they're extinct because they died out from, yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. uh, from our colonialism and the science yeah. rational base. So it's like how to, I think it would be a challenge just to how to go back to this tradition with a sort of like discernment mm -hmm. and um, there needs to be some sort of bridge of you. Yeah. Uh, because it seems like a sort of a world we divided these two worlds in such a a gap that there's yeah. a big um, leap you have to take, you know, and I don't think, uh, yeah, I think your question is interesting because I think they do hold a key. Yeah. They hold a precious key, but it's like when, but I, th I don't think a lot of contemplative tradition believe in the, where society is going either. I think it's either we, we wait until the earth renews itself, you know, and start all over. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and let the ignorance play out, you know, or... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's... Because I don't think at the moment they're... The, either they're present or they, they have a voice for it because the, there's, there's not really a, a dialogue or a, an exchange, a mutual exchange. Mm -hmm. That's happening. I spoke to you before, before our recording, how one of my friend who works with the Kogi Indian, for the first time, there's a, a mutual dialogue with science, that, but more progressive scientists. Yeah. And I think that generation is also emerging with more uh, people that are me meditating. I think that's the only difference between 30, 40 years ago mm -hmm. in the West. Yeah, uh, and now there are people meditating, you know, in in society. Whereas, when you look about forty years ago, is it's just a rationalistic world, you know. And neither you had the, the 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 religious dogmas that were there in different institutions, or I think this is why existentialism was born. Others was born from that, uh, from the yeah. extreme, you know. So. Yeah, because I, I, in my non-dualistic view, I am open to other contemplative practice because I do, I, I do yeah. feel like there's, yeah, there's a key there that's missing. Yeah. So next week we'll be talking about my methodology chapter and then that the modes of knowledge production. Um, in the final chapter, in the in my 
dissertation, I'm mainly using three, the city-state yogic, the later Buddhist scholastic, and then the modern scientific scholastic. In the final chapter of my dissertation, I speculate that there's an earlier mode called the village shamanic mode of knowledge production. So so in total, I have four modes of knowledge production. Um, and that, yeah, so from like the Native American women's liberation movement, which is different from the more mainstream liberal women's liberation movement. Um, there's a, yeah, a group of Native American women that are focused on trauma as individual and collective and looking at it as intergenerational. And their view is that widespread trauma, like what Freud discovered, is it, it came with imperialism and colonialism that yes it, it may not be true in every tribe in the u.s mm -hmm. but in many tribes there was not widespread trauma until colonialism showed up yes yes and so then so that the village shamanic worldview has to be understood and then the it's its particular understanding of colonialism has to be understood and then, so then when we talk about Buddhism and different yogic traditions in Buddhism, I think there also has to be more openness and exchange between Buddhism as yogic practice to renounce the world and become liberated and Buddhist yogic practice that's in touch with um, shamanic practice. And it's more about sustaining the community and um, being in touch with the natural world and then the different spirits and deities within the world and just trying to create a sustainable harm harmonious uh rhythm or tradition of living um and not necessarily trying to get out of it but just trying to make it be a more harmonious <laughs> way of being in it mm. so i feel like yeah the the city-state yogic buddhism has to be reconnected with earlier village shamanic uh mode and then we talk about i talk about it as early and later but we get, we also have to talk about it just as all four all four modes are existing now they're all in operation now there are different groups making use of them in different combinations um and that yeah so that we for an integral view we need to be aware of all four modes and not allow one to dominate the other, but have more open exchange between them and mm -hmm. try to find what's the optimum balance of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that'll, that'll be what we get on to next week. Uh... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. Oh, so I thanks. forgot to mention Yeah. when we spoke about trauma, uh, that the study that I spoke about last week was on uh, Fellini's work with the ACE adverse oh, right. childhood experience. Adverse childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was a, a pioneer, pioneer, pioneer work of, of trauma also because they, yeah. they finally realized, like Fellini said, it's not us, it's them. So it's now really bringing that trauma issue into like a like the middle class and the, the people. Yeah the modern context you know so yeah exactly okay okay cool